Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. What was the complaint of the Pharisees in the moment from our gospel lesson is a profound blessed reality of Jesus Christ and his holy bride, the church. God, the God of the universe, has fellowship with sinful human beings. He leaves the 99 and goes and seeks the one. Born out of love, the creator of all things became incarnate, took upon himself human flesh, and he dwelt with corrupted, unworthy creatures. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them as a powerful, it is a beautiful sentence, a beautiful statement of theology. But I don't think that we truly appreciate it. I think that sometimes we take it for granted. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19, you'll see a familiar story. It's the story of the rich young ruler, or the rich young man. He is there, and he asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' response is quick. Keep the commandments of God. And the man says, which ones are these? And Jesus proceeds to list them out of order. And he gives them a few of them from the second table of the law. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And summarizing them, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man, without missing a beat, quickly says, I've kept all of these from my youth. I've done a pretty good job of keeping them. Actually, I've done a magnificent job of keeping them. And so Jesus, to this response, in turn says to him, Okay, fine. Go. Sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then I want you to come and follow me. That's what he says to him. And we know how the story ends. The man goes away sad. He just walks away because he has many possessions. Whenever that Bible story from Matthew 19 comes up in church and Bible studies or sermons, usually it's an illustration for idolatry, right? We know the definition of the first commandment in the small catechism. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Well, this man feared, loved, and trusted in his money above all things, even when God was standing there staring him in the face. He loved his possessions more than Jesus and his salvation. But I think that that Matthew 19 story is also a good illustration of something else. It's a good picture, a good bad example of the knowledge of sin and what sin deserves. Specifically, talking about it today, this man, I want to point out, did not quite know himself. He knew his possessions, but he didn't know how deep his sin ran. And moreover, most importantly, he didn't realize what his sin deserved before Almighty God. He didn't know its eternal consequences. I think if he did know that, remember, this is not a parable. That's a real man who existed, who was born into this world, walked around, talked, and interacted with Jesus. Okay, If he did know those things, I think that in the moment, right away, he would have said, as quickly as he said, I've kept all these commandments, okay, Lord, I will sell all I have. I will give it to the poor. I will follow you. But he didn't. In the moment he didn't, he went away sad, and if nothing changed for that man, he had eternal consequences for that loss. If you turn a few chapters earlier in Matthew, you'll see chapter 9. And what you have in chapter 9 of Matthew is the same complaint from the Pharisees as the Pharisees and the scribes have in today's gospel lesson. Jesus calls Matthew, also known as Levi, depends on which gospel you're reading, same person. He calls him to be his disciple. 
And so he leaves his tax-collecting get-up that he had and went and became one of the twelve. And then right after that, you see Jesus is in the homes of tax collectors and sinners, eating with them. The Pharisees are grumbling at this. This man receives sinners and eats with him. This man, Jesus. How terrible is it that he does this? How awful that he is associating with such scum of our society. And Jesus responds in Matthew 9 with these famous words. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, they're the ones that need the doctor. You see, the Pharisees, quite clearly today, and then in Matthew chapter 9, have this problem. They don't realize how bad off they are. They don't understand how sick they are. They don't understand that they are themselves sinners and tax collectors, as it were, before God the Father in heaven. And I think that that problem is one that a lot of Christians struggle with today. You see, we all know that we are sinners. If someone were to ask you, are you a sinner? You would say, yeah, yeah, we talk about that a lot. Yeah, I believe that, right? If someone said to you, do you know that God exists and he has a righteous anger against sin? You would say, yeah, I believe that too. Do you believe that in the blood of Jesus Christ there is forgiveness, justification, and salvation? You say, yep, yep, I know that one as well. But sometimes I think our day-to-day -day and our week-to-week -week actions do not reflect that those are sincerely, deeply held beliefs or central beliefs to our lives. That's portrayed in a variety of ways, but the few I want to hit on this morning are these. I think we don't truly confess in our actions that we believe that we are poor, miserable sinners when we blow off going to church. When we treat church as an indifferent thing that doesn't need to be central to our week, central to our lives. I think we betray that attitude when we spend so much of our free time reading and watching whatever, movies, TV shows, but just can't seem to find the time to read even a chapter of the Bible a day, which takes all of, I don't know, 90 seconds to 120 seconds. I think we betray this attitude when we will make sure we move mountains in life, we will rearrange schedules to make sure our kids never miss a practice for the team that we really want them to play on, and they will never miss a game, but we do not do the same for church and church activities. I think, and this is the big one, if you want to say, what do they talk about on Sunday, this is the one you can go ahead and quote, because this is the one that grates at me. We betray this attitude when we think that dropping our kids off for Sunday school and CEC will be enough to make sure that they grow up and stay Christians, but have absolutely no talk of the Bible, no prayer, no Bible stories, no home life that is centered around Jesus Christ and the family worship of him. And I think, and this is the second one, honorable mention, but it is important, we betray this attitude when we, as sinners, are content with receiving the meal that Jesus says is for the forgiveness of our sins, when we're content just to have it twice a month. These attitudes and actions and more, I think, betray a fundamental confusion about what we are at our core and what we need as that thing at our core. And that is born out of not appreciating and not understanding that we are sinners. Jesus in the gospel, 
The forgiveness of sins, that is a wonderful message. It is a wonderful thing to gather together to believe and to celebrate and receive. But I will say this, it's valueless to us as individuals if we don't first recognize our need for it. If we don't first start from a place that says, I am a horrible person before God. I break his law. I have not a leg to stand on. I need his help in this life and into the next. So what should we do? What should we do for ourselves? What should we do for those that God has placed around us? Well, I say, at least, we should do three things. The first is that we need to take God's word very seriously about what it says about sin and judgment. What it says about our own state as poor, miserable sinners, and what that naturally, without the gospel, means we deserve and have coming to us if we are not in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. He says in Romans 10, no one, no one is without sin. And in Romans 6, he makes very clear what that means. The wages of sin are death. And Paul and the rest of the epistles do this, but we'll use an example from 1 Corinthians 6, where he fleshes out what does that look like a little bit more in concrete terms. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what the Lord's word says only in brief survey of sin and God's righteous judgment against it. The second thing that we need to do, and it's in the face of this first point, is we need to take our consciences seriously. The thing inside of us that tells us right and wrong and reminds us that we are on the wrong side of that measure, we need to listen to it. When we feel guilt over a sin, whether it's something that happened today or that happened a long time ago, we shouldn't run away from it. We should not try and distract our minds from it so we just don't have to deal with the deep weight of that sin and its feeling that is residual in our life. But rather, we should stop. We should examine ourselves. And we should let those feelings, at least for a little bit, I would say this, at least for a little bit, weigh on us. We should not accrue teachers whether it's in the things that we listen to or the things that we read or the church that we go to, who will scratch all too willingly our itching ears, only speaking to us things that they know we'll agree with, that they know that we'll accept readily, that we know will not make the offering any lighter that week. Okay, the line I have for you on that is, if you've ever heard a sermon, or if you've never heard a sermon at church that has unsettled you even just a little bit or pushed back against what you think is the right, okay, you have a bad pastor. You have a pastor that's not doing his job. You have a pastor that doesn't care about you, or rather, he cares more about his, what you think of him than your actual eternal soul. And if I've never actually, two years almost, offended you with even a little bit or pushed back a little bit, bring it up in a voters' meeting, and we'll just go from there. But no, I want you to let your conscience accuse you. I want you to, before the face of that thing God put inside you to tell you what's right and wrong, to feel bad about yourself and what you are. Because it's a good litmus test for the way things actually are. And the third thing that we need to do in the face of all this is, insofar as we have these people in our lives, we need to impress them 
the word of God about sin and judgment and paying attention to the conscience, we need to impress those things on the people in our lives around us. I'm talking about our family members, our kids, and our grandkids. Okay, number one, if we don't live like it's important to us, if we don't have our own lives centered around our sin and God's grace in Jesus Christ, don't even for a second expect that your kids are going to give two hoots about it when they grow up. Don't expect your kids, even if they go to CEC in Sunday school or come to church occasionally, they won't care if you don't. It is as basic as that, and everybody can see that who is at least in my business. And so you need to live it yourself and impress it upon them that it is important. Let your words and actions in your daily life, your life outside of this building, show that there's nothing more important to you than you being a sinner redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I always impress upon the kids, and if there's one thing I really hope that everybody remembers from CEC, it's what I call the Catechism's Charge. And it's not really something that most people have their kids or confirmands memorize, but I do in the hopes that when they're grown up they will remember this. It's the preface to each of the six parts. If you look there, it's in all caps, small font, and it says, as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. The head of the family is dad, and if dad's not there, it's mom. And if mom's not doing it, grandma and grandpa should step in. But my point is, it starts not in the church basement or in the Sunday school classroom. It starts at the home. That is where Luther gave the task of raising our children to know their sin and to know their Savior. And if that's not done, I'm not going to be able to do a whole lot to remedy it. It must be a priority in our homes for the sake of our children. These are just three things. I'm sure there's a lot more, and I'd be glad to talk about them at length some other time, but they are important. And when we do them, it won't do this. If you're not a good singer or you don't like to sing, it's not going to make you a better singer. It's not going to make you like to sing, for instance. And it's not going to make you enjoy these longer hymns that I pick some Sundays for seven stanzas, the hymn of the day. But I'll tell you this, if you do these things, you're at least going to value the message of the hymns, even if not the tune and the length of it. You're at least going to be like, this is good stuff, it's a good wholesome meal, even if it could use a little bit of salt, pepper, or whatever. I closed my sermon last week by telling you that Jesus is a beautiful Savior. But that is true for each of us individually, only insofar as you know how rotten and horrible and ugly you are before God. And so today I'm just telling you this, be that sinner. That is, I want you to be and understand how truly bad off before God, by your own merits, you actually are. Because if you do that, if you know sincerely, not just reading what's on the screens or in the hymnal, but if you say, I am a poor, miserable sinner, and you can say right away, that is the most accurate statement about me that any breath has ever spoken in this life. If that is true, then the rest is going to follow. Namely, you will love Jesus Christ with a sincere and a deep and a heartfelt love. You will love his gifts in his word and in his sacraments and the place where you come to get them. You are just as bad as the Bible and your conscience tell you that you are. So embrace that. Lean into it so that you can love the cure all the more. Embrace it so that you can be hungry for and satisfied with the meal that Jesus gives you at his table 
all the more. Embrace it and believe it's cure so that way, in that great day when you stand before him, he will not say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, but rather he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.